welcome this morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8. Continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. As we've said over the last few weeks, we're working our way through uh, the stories in the Gospel of Luke. And much of this book is devoted to, um, to God's Spirit bringing about God's kingdom in this world. In, in other words, um, the, the Spirit of God showing all of us, showing the people in these stories, showing us now as readers um, this new kingdom that Christ is bringing about, and this story is unfolding primarily through the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus is the one bringing this kingdom to bear. He is the, the the physical image of the invisible God. And so, as we think through the stories of Jesus, um, it really begs the question of, well, who who is this man? Who who are we dealing with here? And we've seen that question. Uh, and we'll continue to see that question come up over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. We, we talked last week that in one way or another, the, the scribes and Pharisees have asked multiple times, who is this man? The, the Pharisee and the prostitute in their meal together in chapter 7, Herod asking, who is this man? Jesus asking other people, including uh, Peter, who do you say that I am? How are, you, how are you relating to me? Jesus asks them and asks us. We saw last week with his disciples that after Jesus had calmed the storm, remember there's a storm raging, Jesus and his disciples are on this boat, the disciples think that they're about to die, and Jesus is asleep on the boat. They wake him up, and he simply says, peace, be still, and the storm ends completely. The disciples are saying, who, who is this man? Even, even the sea, even the water, even the wind, even the rain, obey him. Who are we dealing with here? And through this gospel, we see that Luke is really building his case. Luke is building his case, and even in these series of stories that, we've, uh, that we read last week and today, and then we'll read another one next week, um, this idea that um, the, the, the person and work of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, is coming into clearer and clearer focus with each story, with each page. And today is, is another very vivid story about Jesus' power and authorities, even over evil and demonic power. So let's read together in Luke chapter 8. I'll start at verse 26 here. It says this, And then they sailed again. So this is, this is immediately after. This is just the, the very next thing that's happening from the story that we read last week. They were on the boat. There was a storm. Jesus calms the storm. They continue to sail to the other side of Galilee. It says, When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Some translations will say a man with an unclean spirit. And it says, For a long time this man had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. A man living naked in a graveyard. Again, this is a very vivid story. And when Jesus saw this man, he cried out and, and, and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It says, For at many times it had seized the man, it had kept him under guard, it had bound him with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus then asks, What is your name? So he's, he's not necessarily speaking to the man, he's essentially speaking through the man. He sees this man is, is governed not by himself only, 
He says that this power has uh, made him essentially go crazy, taking off his clothes, living in a graveyard, hurting himself, can't be bowed by chains. And Jesus sees this unclean spirit in this man. He says, what's your name? And, and he says, Legion. For many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And it says, now a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so Jesus gave them permission. They couldn't do anything without Jesus' permission. Right? He's sovereign over every bit of this story. And so the demons then came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and it says the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And it says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, right, the, the, they were their pigs, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons have gone, and now he's sitting there at Jesus' feet. He's clothed, he's in his right mind, and so they're all afraid. This is not the man they had known before, and all of their pigs have died. And those who had seen it told them how this demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got in the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. God, again, we ask that you speak to us this morning. God, teach us about your power. Teach us about your authority. God, we confess this morning we want to know you. We want to know who we're dealing with. We want to know our creator, the king of the universe, the one who can forgive us, the only one who can save us. God, we want to know you this morning, so teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this is a very, very vivid scene in the Gospels. Uh, maybe one of the most vivid scenes. I would say certainly the most vivid scene as it relates to uh, Jesus interacting with a demon. We meet this man with an unclean spirit living among the tombs. He's wild. He's uncontrollable. He's, he's tortured by his neighbors, possibly even his family members. They've tried to bind him with chains and, and he can't be bound. He spends, his, he spends his time wailing. Uh, scripture says that he spends his time cutting himself, torturing himself. Mark 5, the stories in uh, the Synoptic Gospels says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a dark man in a dark place. And maybe some of us can relate in one way or another to varying degrees or another and for Jesus and for Jesus' disciples, this man was unclean uh, for several reasons. This man, this man was very unclean. This man was unclean because he had an unclean spirit in him. This man was unclean because he chose to live among the dead, which would make him unclean. And this man was uh, among the, the Gentiles in pig country, very unclean for the Jews. And yet... Thankfully, none of this stops Jesus, right? 
None of this stops Jesus. Jesus pursues this man. Jesus knows what he's, what's about to happen, right? Jesus, sovereignly in control, as he was sovereignly in control over the storm, he knows where he's going. He knows he's going into this Gentile community with a known madman. Jesus knew that this man had an unclean spirit, that he would be waiting for him right as soon as he got off the boat. Jesus knew this man was possessed and tormented by unclean spirits. This man had a demon, an army of demons in him, controlling him. Jesus, too, knew that this would uh, just worsen the problem that, that he was having with the Jewish religious leaders because they were already sort of on to Jesus. They've been trying to trap Jesus. They've been trying to find a reason to condemn Jesus. And this would just be more fuel for the fire. And still Jesus goes. Still Jesus goes to this man in a dark place and he delivers them. Jesus, Jesus loves the unclean. Jesus pursues the unclean. Jesus transforms the unclean. As we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on a mission to heal and to restore. And so he enters this man's dark world. Now I want to ask you this morning, I think it's important for us to kind of think through this question do we really believe in demons? I mean, is that what we're talking about in 2018, right? I mean, it seems so primitive, doesn't it? This idea of evil spirits, of demonic powers, of demon possession. Do you believe in the supernatural world? Do you believe that there's something going on beyond what you can see and experience with your five senses? And I think it's a fair question to say, if you believe, if you believe the scriptures, and if, you, if you're okay with believing in God, and maybe even in his angels, then why would we struggle to believe in the enemy and his demons? In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So there is a battle here, right? There's a wrestling happening here, but it's not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a, there's a world happening around us. There is a, there is a supernatural World. In fact, in some ways, that's what Jesus is doing in bringing about his kingdom. He is kind of pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see this, this other world, this supernatural world, where there's more than meets the eye than just what we see any given day. In his book on uh, systematic theology, Wayne Grudem, he writes this about demons. He says, if scripture gives us a true account of the world as it really is, and, and as a Christian, I'm believing that. I'm confessing that the scriptures do give us a true account of the world as it really is. He says, then we must take seriously its portrayal of intense demonic activity in human society. Our failure to perceive that involvement with our own five senses simply tells us that we have some deficiencies in our ability to understand the world, not that demons don't exist. Much of our Western secularized society is unwilling to admit the existence of demons. It just seems too far-fetched. It, it, it seems ancient. It seems primitive. It doesn't seem to fit in our world because so much of our world, we've sort of pushed out the supernatural. It says in our society, we are unwilling, often unwilling to admit the existence of demons, except perhaps maybe in other primitive societies, uh, and we just relegate all this talk of demonic activity 
to the category of superstition. But if we believe the scriptures, if we read and believe the scriptures, then we have to confess that there is a supernatural world at work. There is God and his enemy. There, is, there are angels and there are demons. There are demons and yet not everything is a demon. Do you hear me, church? Not everything that goes wrong, not every problem, not every attitude, not every action that you don't like is demonic, right? C.S. Lewis gives us some balance in his uh, introduction to the screw tape letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. We just dismiss it. It's like, no, that's not happening. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? So, so one temptation is to say, they don't exist. We don't, have to, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to think about that. It doesn't have to affect our prayers or, our, or the way we live our lives. The other is to sort of zero in on evil forces to think that everything that goes wrong in this world has been orchestrated by a demon. We should embrace the supernatural, but not the superstitious, right? There is this world at work. I mean, I've heard people talk about the demon of poverty or the demon of sickness or the demon of anger. And, and I, I think certainly those things can be manifested through evil spirits, but, but it's not everything that just goes wrong. Not everything that's broken. Not everything even in our souls where we struggle is the work of a demon. Says so Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And he says, Legion, which is in some ways even terrifying to, to think about, to hear. In the Roman army, uh, in the ancient world, a legion was its largest unit. It's about four to 6,000 men. And so what, what this demon is saying is that, that, that we have an army in this man. We have an army. There are thousands of us controlling this man. Maybe some of us can relate. Maybe not necessarily to a kind of demon possession or an internal unclean spirit, but we can relate to the conflict, right? We can relate at least to this internal war. One writer empathizing with this man's plight, he says, sometimes I feel like 6,000 soldiers are inside of me. Sometimes they march left, sometimes, sometimes they march right, sometimes in all different directions. I'm pulled one way, then I'm pulled another. There is an army inside me, and sometimes I feel like I'm losing the war. Anybody relate to that? One commentator, David Garland, says, We may see ourselves in this disturbed man. Right? We, we may look at this man and say, I, I, can, I can empathize with that plight, that, that evil control, that, that sinful, demonic control over this man. He is beaten down by others. He is divided against himself. There is a civil war raging within him. He's living among the tombs of life and feeling all alone. It's a terrible thing to be held captive. It's a terrible thing to be a slave. And what this man's slavery looked like, this man was isolated from his community, from his family. In fact, not just 
isolated, but ostracized. He was essentially put away. And, and not only that, but, but bound, physically enslaved. This man was self-destructive. This man was depressed. This man couldn't imagine any other scenario or reality for himself. He, he had been in a dark place for a long time. It says that for a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This was his story. This was his history. Darkness. An army inside of him. It's ironic, too, as we read through this, that... Um, that this man is both empowered and enslaved. Do you see that there? The, the man is em, em, empowered by this evil spirit. Right? You can't even, you, you, he can't be bound by chains. He's literally breaking off his shackles. He, cannot, he is empowered completely by this evil spirit. And yet, he's utterly enslaved. He's living among the tombs, spends his nights crying, spends his nights cutting himself with stones, empowerment, and enslavement. This is, this is how sin works in our lives, right? There's something empowering about sin, isn't there? There's something empowering about living in such a way that you're telling God, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to spend how I want to spend. I'm going to talk how I want to talk. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Sin is empowering. Rebellion is empowering. And yet... It's enslaving. Sin enslaves us. It shrinks our world. It doesn't expand it. We are, we are, we are ruled and enslaved by our own uh, fleeting sinful desires. Sin is a prison cell. Sin is a warden. Sin is a slave master. But the good news is Jesus offers freedom for this man. In verse 32, we see here, now a large herd of pigs. Mark will say uh, that there are at least 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of bacon, right? And for these herdsmen who are complaining about Jesus, who are wanting Jesus to leave, this is their livelihood. So it says that this, this herd of 2,000 pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> these, this army of demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And it says the demons came out of this man, entered the pigs, and this whole herd of 2,000 pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they drowned. Jesus has, has calmed the storm. And now he's calming this raging storm in this man's soul. You see that Jesus, Jesus uh, prevails against the chaos of your life. Jesus prevails against our own destruction or even our own self-destruction. Jesus pre prevails uh, in our storm. Jesus calms our storm. Jesus enters our darkness. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into with this guy. Jesus knows exactly what he's getting into with us. He knows our story. He knows our story better than we know our story. He knows who we are and who we want to be and who we were better than we could ever imagine, better than we could ever even know ourselves. And still, He pursues us. He comes to us. 
He engages us. He enters into our darkness. He exposes our darkness. And he offers an ending to our darkness. He's a deliverer. Not only does he end this darkness, not only does he redeem this man's dark story, but he transforms it, right? He transforms it. It says in verse 35, The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. They found this man uh, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. There's one writer says, This contrast between the man possessed and the man cured is striking. And it is, isn't it? Freed from his demons, now the man sits clothed, he's in his right mind, and yet in the midst of this disorderly life, this disorderly world, alienated from God, Jesus brings order. He brings individuality. You see how dehumanizing it was for this man? You see how dehumanizing evil was for this man? How internally internally disintegrating, Jesus now brings order, peace, to this tormented soul. It's interesting the word that they use here um, in uh, verse 36 where it says that this man was healed. They'd seen, they had seen that this man was healed. It's actually, the, the word can be translated, it's probably better translated, saved. He was saved. It's sort of both an internal and external transformation. And not only was this man saved, and not only was this man healed, but what happens next? How does Jesus interact with this man now? He commissions him, right? He gives him a mission. He says, I've got something for you to do, man. And, and, and what this man wants, he's, he's not only been saved, you know, we've said it before, grace has no end user. It has no final user. Grace is, grace is meant to be eternally shared. So as we experience transformation, as we experience grace and mercy, we are then compelled out to share that grace and mercy to the world. As this man, as he was transformed, as he had experienced God's grace and mercy, he now is commissioned out into the world. In fact, and this may have even been more difficult, Jesus says, I want you to go back home. And I want you to tell them how good I am. Now, if you're that man... Do you want to go back home? Probably not. This man didn't have a very good home. For a long time, he'd been ostracized. He'd been ridiculed, humiliated. People were likely afraid of him. They'd literally tried to bind him. But Jesus says, I want you to stay in this community. Even though I'm calling you to go back to the people that mock you, even though I'm calling you to go back to the people who know you have a dark story, this is your mission. The man wanted to be with Jesus, and that's a good thing, right? That's the natural response to, to being transformed by him, to experiencing his grace. And yet, Jesus says, you have been transformed, so now go. You've got a story to tell. You've got a story to tell to these people. These Gentiles who... At this point, want nothing to do with me. Just go tell them how good I am. In fact, your whole life will be a picture and an image and a testimony to how good I am. This is exactly what happens in, in verse 39. It says, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
God is going to have a unique calling on each of our lives. Some of you, God may call to your family to share your story there. Some maybe to Kenya. Maybe some of you to your coworkers. Some of you to another country. Maybe even some of you to martyrdom. Maybe some of you to humiliation. Maybe some of you to success. That call on God's, the life of God's children is different. There's, remember that story in the Gospel of John where uh, you know, Jesus is giving out uh, his commissioning to his disciples. And one of the disciples says, well what, about, well, what about this guy? You said this about me, but what about him? And Jesus says, what does that have to do with you? It doesn't have anything to do with you. He's got a mission for each of us. God's unique calling on each of our lives. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this past season, perhaps, and maybe some of us feel this way, perhaps you feel like you have descended so deeply into sin and the scars are so profound on your soul that you've given up on ever being made whole. I hope that's not where you're at this morning, but you may be. That you've got such a terrible story, you've got such a terrible past, the scars are, are so deep and have been inflicted for so long, you think, what, what hope is there for me? How can Jesus redeem this mess, this story, this history? How can that be transformed? He continues, says, he can deliver you from anything. He can deliver you from anything if you will only come to him, not only from your miserable past, but also from your present sins, from your hatreds, from your prejudices, from your self-loathing. God can deliver you. He, he can reorder you. He can recreate you. That's that beautiful language of the New Testament. You are new creation. You don't have to be who you were. That's not who you are anymore. But the enemy is real. The enemy is real and active in this world. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Realize that there is a, this, this world happening behind the scenes, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy that wants to devour you. Jesus will say in John chapter 10, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There is, there is someone working to give you life, to give you a new, new story, to turn you into new creation, to redeem your past mistakes. It's interesting that that's the, the sort of the theme that we've been seeing through the Gospel of Luke is these people with these, these, these stories, these really difficult stories. I'm thinking even of the, the prostitute and the Pharisee. There's this struggle. There's just so much baggage, baggage brought into this relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is using these stories. Luke is highlighting these stories. Let's see what God can do there. You see what God can do with you? You see how God uses these profound and terrible mistakes, these terrible stories, to transform into abundant lives? We may find ourselves in dark places, find ourselves mad with sin, 
self-destructive, isolated. But Jesus enters into our chaos. Jesus enters into our darkness and he confronts it and he puts it to death. That's what Marcus read this morning from Colossians 3. He won. He won. I forget which writer said it, but he said, Satan has been defanged. He has power over the enemy. But, you, but, but he has the power over the enemy, not you. Not me. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who gives it abundantly. He is the one who enters that darkness, confronts it, and ends it. Not you. And not me. He disarmed the rulers. He disarmed the authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them and himself. You see, Jesus not only enters our darkness, he, he takes it on himself. That's the story of the gospel. C.S. Lewis says he's, he's the great intervener. He intervened into our dark story. He took it on himself to secure our freedom, to give us new life, to transform us, to make us new creation, to restore and redeem you and me. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was bound. Jesus was crying out in agony. Jesus was the one alone in the tomb, but it was Jesus who came out victorious. He won. And he endured that shame. He endured that struggle. He endured that evil, our sin, so that we could be free. Who, who is this man? Who is this man? Martin Luther wrote a little poem. It says this, Did we in our own strength confide? Well, then our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Do we ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. If you are overwhelmed this morning, if you are overwhelmed with darkness, as I know some of you are, if you are overwhelmed with darkness this morning, will, will you let Jesus in? Will you fall at His feet? Will you give yourself over to someone who can transform that darkness, that old story, into a new one? The good news, church, is your sin will not shock Him. In fact, your, your shame that you bring to Jesus will only solicit more grace and more mercy and more love. That's what you have coming to you. And maybe this morning, maybe you have experienced this transforming grace. Maybe you have experienced God's mercy. Maybe you have been delivered from darkness. Well, let me ask you, church, what story are you telling? God gave this man a story to tell and a hard story among hard people. If, you, if you've tasted that mercy, have you offered it to others?